Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, you're watching Tax Tuesday or listening to Tax Tuesday, whichever you may be doing, or both. My name is Toby Mathis. And Jeff Webb. And you're watching Tax Tuesday, where we're bringing tax knowledge to the masses, which is a, a noble endeavor. We'll see what we can do. Let's jump right into rules because I pontificate too much and take up too much time. We want to be done in an hour. We'll give never, you I would never accuse you of that. A big dose within an hour. All right. So you could ask questions live. We have a bunch of folks on. We've got Christos out there, Ian, Pio, Elliot, Dana. Gosh, we have a lot of people on. Tricia, uh, subbing in for Troy. So you have a whole bunch of tax folks out there to answer your questions. You can put them in the question and answer. So it says Q&A. If you have uh, and you're willing to just respond Normally, you just go right into chat and respond that way. In fact, you guys can say hi and let us know that you're out there. Uh, just go into chat and just let us know you are rolling around. Yeah, tell us where you're at too, where you're at in the country. That's always fun. See where everybody is. I'm not really sure where everybody is. There's a few people. Hilo, Oklahoma, Houston, San Jose, Orlando, Vegas, Fort Myers, Redwood City, Denver, California, La Quinta, Boston, Raleigh. PA, SoCal, Austin, Denver, California, Corona, New York, Austin, again, Tennessee, Ann Arbor, San Antonio, Riverside, Jacksonville, China. We're in China, Steve. Morgan Hill, Dallas-Fort Worth, Charlotte, Detroit, St. Louis, Missouri, Hartford, Connecticut, Delaware, somebody's phone number, <laughs> Portland, Baltimore, Louisiana, Gangzhou. I probably just butchered that, Guanzhou. Somebody said, big, looking for a tax strategy. Hey, Rick, if you could put that into the Q&A, our guys will answer it. If it's in the chat, they're not going to be able to see it. New Jersey, Atlanta, Georgia. Somebody's asking about Alpine, 1031 Exchange, of course. Yeah, if you're buying properties with Alpine, those are buy and holds. And uh, absolutely, they're unless you're doing uh, the, the occasional flip, they will do. But for the most part, they're buy and hold folks. So yeah, that would qualify. If you have questions during the, the, the period that we're not meeting, we, we meet every two weeks. Uh, you can certainly ask questions via Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. We'll get back to you, give you a response. If you need something that's very specific to you, and more importantly, where it starts carrying some liability for us, <coughs> then you need to be a platinum client or become a tax client, which our folks can talk to you about. It's actually really inexpensive to be platinum, $35 a month tax client just means you're signing up. There's a small retainer and then you could ask all the questions you want. This is fast, fun, and education. We want to get back and help educate. But if you have general questions, just ask them. We're always going to answer it. There's no cost. Every Friday between four and five, Elliot and I also answer questions in tax office hours. So feel free to... So every Friday between four and five Pacific Standard Time. Pacific Standard Time. You guys do that at the end of the week? Yeah. Do you have any brain power left or are you just like sitting there drinking beers? <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I'm sure they wonder. Yeah, no, you guys are great. Uh, so if you're a client, then on Friday, you get to, you could just ask, you come on in, especially if you're, you know, if you're a tax client, you're trying to get a quick answer or something. 
Somebody says, please cover depreciation on rental property. Arvind, really? <laughs> you just explain. Depreciation is just a deduction. It's based on the useful life of the property. There's tons of different ways you could calculate it, depending on how many days you're renting it, whether you have personal use, whether it's something you're, you reside in, vacation property, short-term rentals, with services, substantial services, non-substantial services. Like if I spent going off on depreciation. I need to know specifics. Otherwise, we'd be teaching a class, which we do every month. So there you go. That's where you want to go. All right. Uh, or go onto our YouTube. I do a ton. But if I know what type of things you're talking about, a depreciation is just a deduction. But there's a million ways to nuances to those mm-hmm. rules, whether it's 5, 7, 15 year, whether it's 27 and a half, 39 year, whether it is subject to 168, 179, all these fun things, whether you're cost sagging it, the methodology that you're using for your accounting, all that comes into play. So you need to know a little bit more. All right. Opening questions. We have a ton of them. So I'm just going to go over them quickly and then we will answer them. Can I offer my condos as a rent to own rental for six months and sell it as a 1031 exchange? Uh, I own real estate, a business and have W-2 income. I was told that I can't take all deductions allowed because I'm in the process of acquiring more real estate and won't be able to qualify for financing. Is this true? We'll answer that. Should I invest in LP multifamily syndications with the same LLC as I have active personal rentals? We'll talk about that. I have been told that as a land wholesaler, I would not be considered a dealer by the IRS like I would be if I wholesaled houses. I make no improvements. You do not subdivide. You don't move any dirt, no utilities, no roads added, nothing. Would the IRS still consider me a dealer if I simply wholesale? We've had similar questions in that vein a little bit. So I have a feeling that there's some, somebody's out there teaching some funky stuff, but we'll answer that. I am a co-founder of a startup C-Corp. Can I establish a self-directed Roth IRA and put my company share in it? Over what the rules are for that. How do I handle a family rental for income and expense that was just inherited? The property name will be in my parents' family trust with part income distributed to the children as their share of the property. The parents will be claiming all expenses and sharing the income with the children. Do the parents deduct the income given to the children as part of their expense? We will answer that. These are long. Mm-hmm. I bought the property in Texas in my name, now putting it into an LLC. The LLC will be put inside a Wyoming LLC. I still have mortgages on the above property and keep making my payments. Do banks still use my above mortgage liability to calculate my debt to income ratio. So are they going to use the above mortgage liability, excuse me, to calculate the debt to income ratio? Talk about that. Good questions. Long. When I file my personal taxes, can I still write off my taxes on my property held under my Wyoming LLC? So we'll answer that one. My husband and I divorced in 2009 for asset protection reasons. Interesting but have lived together this whole time in the same homes. I purchased a home in Florida, January, 2019, that we moved into and is our primary residence. If we get remarried before we sell, can we use the joint exclusion 500,000? What is the approximate price point that the S corporation should be moved to a C corp? Interesting question there. Regarding the tax reform act of 1986, just a few years ago. If I make under 100,000, I can write off up to $25,000 of real estate losses provided I have active participation. If I make over $150,000, I cannot write any losses off unless I'm a real estate professional with material participation. Then I can write off the real estate losses against my other income, question mark. 
I am turning 70 and have a traditional IRA account, which lost money. At some point, it was worth 90K and now it's worth around 30. Now that I have to start withdrawing, am I going to pay taxes given the fact I lost money? Again, good questions. We'll get to them. So let's jump on the first one. Jeffrey. Yes, sir. Can I offer my condo as a rent-to-own rental for six months and sell it as a 1031 exchange? Here's the problem I see with the way this is worded. If you're offering your condo as a rent-to-own, you're contemplating the sale of that property. Mm-hmm. And I think that in itself, from what I've, what I've seen, we've had to look this up before, it becomes a sale of property. It doesn't become a rental property. So what Jeff is saying, if you don't mind me no, breaking it down, is we have different types of income. So when I'm doing certain activities, it's taxed one way. So for example, if I am running a mini mart and I buy Cheerios and put them on the shelf, that is taxed differently than if I buy a bunch of equipment that I'm going to leave there for a long period of time, right? One of those is inventory and the other one is is a is a fixed asset that that's going to be either attached to the building or is in there, whatever. And so there's different rules. When we're talking about real estate, if I'm buying property to sell it, it's treated like the Cheerios. It's just inventory. And if it's just inventory, then it's not eligible for a 1031 exchange because 1031 exchanges are only worth, uh, you can only use those on real estate investments. An investment is when you buy it for long-term hold and rents. So when you buy a condo, and when you say my condo, it really depends. Is this your personal residence? Could I do that? Yeah, maybe because you bought it for long term. So now I just have to convert it into an investment property, potentially. Or is this something you bought recently and you're going to do a rent to own? Thinking that, hey, I want to do a rent to own and then sell it. And I want to just buy something new. So the answer to you is assuming that you just bought this is no, it will not be eligible for a 1031 exchange. It'll be considered dealer property. And the problem with dealer property is if you carry that note, you are not eligible for installment sales. You're not eligible for that 1031 exchange. And you're subject to not just ordinary income, your normal tax bracket, but you're subject to self-employment taxes as well, which is social security taxes, old age, disability, survivors, and health insurance, whatever you want to call it it's that extra uh, 15.3%. So nasty situation. So make sure that you're talking to an accountant. A lot of people also, I'll ask you this, Jeff, if I buy a property and I tend to sell it and I own it for three years, can I take advantage of long-term capital gains? Dealer property? No. So it doesn't matter how long you held it for either. It's inventory It's like going into the grocery store and finding something that's been sitting on their shelf for two or three years. doesn't matter. Inventory is deducted against the sale price. That's it. So I'm assuming that this was either a primary residence or a second home. If it's, let's say it's a primary residence. So if he wants the 1031 this, I think he could possibly do it if he removes the whole rent to own scenario. You just need to rent it. You could have an option. So the rent to own really just means a, lease with an option to buy it at some point. It's a, somebody says it's a primary residence. Yeah. What, what IRS has typically done on these rent to own deals is they consider the whole thing a sale. Mm-hmm. They do not consider it a rental property. So Jennifer, how long have you held this property if you're out there? Because what we care about is whether there's another route for you. So if I have 30 years, then you have a 121 exclusion. 
So is it has it gone up more than two hundred fifty thousand or five hundred thousand if you're married? Yes. So what you do, Jennifer, is you're in the classic situation where the IRS explains this actually. Uh, and by the way, I'm looking at chat. So apparently, the person who emailed this in, Jennifer, is corresponding with me, so I can see her answers. So if this is 30 years, you have a whole bunch of gain that you're worried about. We know that we have a 121 exclusion, which is I've owned it and lived in it as my primary residence two of the last five years. If I'm single, I get a $250,000 deduction. If I'm married, I get a $500,000 exclusion, I should say deduction, exclusion of capital gains. So you can do that. Here's the big issues that are the outside of that. Four walls, if you had a uh, home office, we have depreciation recapture. And then anything above that, we have capital gains on. So we can use the 121 exclusion. So let's say we bought it for 200,000 and now it's worth a million. So 700,000 would be safe. 200,000, I bought it for plus the plus any increases. So if you did added a pool or whatever in a condo, you probably didn't do any of that, but let's say it's 500,000. Now you have, you have 700,000 now that is tax-free that wouldn't have 300,000 that is subject to long-term capital gains, which is going to be about 23.8% plus your state tax. So if we want to avoid that, you turn the property into investment property by renting it. And would you say that a year is the safest? I would. You don't want to have the rental, initial rental and the sale on in the same tax year for sure. Yeah. So, so Jennifer, what I would say is rent it out for a year just to be safe. This is a lot of money. You're talking about what is that? About 80 grand, maybe something like that. I don't know your numbers. I'm just making up numbers. So in my little made up numbers, it's a lot of money, but you want to, you're probably going to want to lease that out. No need to inform tenants of my intent to sell. If you're going to sell it, you could always sell it and offer it to the tenants. So you probably want to let them know if you have somebody come in there, doesn't really matter because you're going to sell it subject to the the lease. And if you have a provision that says, if I sell it, it cancels the lease, or maybe there's not going to be a renewal, you may want to let somebody know or say, hey, I'll offer it to you when I sell it. Uh, you don't even have to give them an option. You say, hey, I'm going to list it probably in a year if you want to buy it. But you want to make sure it's an investment property because then you can 1031 exchange it. When we 1031 exchange, it doesn't mean that you're out of luck as being able to live in the exchange property. The, in fact, the code anticipates this by putting an exclusion for using the 121 exclusion for five years after 1031 exchange. So they know some people are going to exchange properties and then go live in it. But when you buy it, it needs to be an investment property. So the same scenario, I rent it for a year. I then do the 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. I use an example of a million dollars. So I put a million dollars into other real estate. Let's say I put it all into my dream home for a million bucks. I would just need to make sure that I'm, I'm leasing that out when I close on the 1031 exchange. There's no real hard and fast rule on it, but you do it and then voila, after you've rented it, it's, it's in, now you can convert it back to a personal residence and you can move back into it and then you don't have to worry. Your basis is now, there's a million dollar sale price, but your basis is now 700,000 in my example. You get to add your 121 exclusion to the basis. So anyway, so it could be fun. Somebody says, well, how would the market be in a year? Well. That's your weighing test, you know, so you could pay all the tax now. You could also sell it and do an installment sale. Since it's your personal residence, you could just sell it, carry back the financing and, and take the, the tax hit over a number of years, mm -hmm. depending on your tax situation. It could be zero 
15% or 20. Yep, Jennifer C. Like there's there's options. You may want to have somebody take a look at some of your options. So it's never a hard and fast, hard. <laughs> like usually there's there's shades of gray on all this as to what you want to do. Uh, how long would you need to lease it before you move back into it? Probably about six months. Some people are going to say a year, but you know, what I would say is find somebody that you know and say, hey, do you want to lease it and live in it gently? You know, like right. lease it. All the IRS is looking at is saying is when you closed, and this is what anybody that's doing 10, uh, 1031 exchanges would say, is they're like, when we closed, was it an investment property? Yeah, good. That's all we care about because there's lots of people that will convert it into something else. Somebody that says, just solved my future problem. That's what we're here for. Anything else you want to throw on that one? That was a good question. So I always like good questions like that. So thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that with us. And uh, now you know that it's real. So some people are always like, you're recording these and you're not answering them live. Trust you. We take things as they fly at us. I own real estate, a business. So I own real estate, a business and have W-2. I was told that I can't take all the deductions allowed because I'm in the process of acquiring more real estate and won't be able to qualify for financing. Is this true? This one kind of makes me crazy, not because this person's asking it, but I've heard this before. <laughs> and a lot of times what people are wanting to do is getting their, their income levels up higher in their rental properties so they can get more financing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, while you're doing that, you're also kissing deductions goodbye. And so I, I think there's better ways to do this. One that we've talked about frequently is putting these rental properties in an entity, get mm-hmm. them out of your personal name. You really want them on, uh, I'll give you guys a little trick. Anything that's underwritten or that's purchased by Freddie and Fannie, so it's not underwritten, but they're going to buy the mortgage, they will use 75% of anything that's on page one of your Schedule E, which is where real estate goes if it's in your name. Uh, They will use 100% of page two of Schedule E, which is where it comes if it comes via K1, via partnership. So number one, you want to make sure that your real estate is probably going on to page two of your Schedule E and your business more than likely is either a C corp or an S corp. You don't want to have a Schedule C. It's going to cause you issues in your financing. Your W-2 is pretty straightforward. So the big question is, do I want to take all the deductions I'm entitled to for real estate? Now, you don't have to take depreciation. You must recapture depreciation. So you're going to pay tax on it, whether you take it or not. But let's say somebody has purchased real estate. And Jeff, hypothetically speaking, they choose not to take the depreciation in that year. So their income is higher. Mm -hmm. Could they do that? They could. Could I take that depreciation in the following year if I choose to catch up? No, actually, you can't. You either have to amend your returns or follow a change of accounting method or... What if I haven't depreciated property for 10 years? Could I catch it up? You could catch it up all in one year. But again, you'd have to follow that change of accounting method, which is Mm -hmm. kind of onerous. Couldn't we do that, though? Couldn't we just wait and say, hey, you know what? I need to... I'm I'm in my building phase. I need to show the highest income. I'm okay paying the tax on it now, but I would like to recapture that depreciation at some point in the future. One thing that concerns me, because I've seen people not take deductions, usually not depreciation, but other items. But the problem I see with that is if you're not reporting all your deductions and you're giving those income statements to the bank. The bank's not stupid. And if they have an underwriter that knows real estate, they're already looking at your depreciation because some people accelerate their depreciation and they know to add the depreciation back in. That was my thought too, is they're usually adding depreciation back anyway, correct? Yeah, yeah, they're going to add it back in. So 
The only thing that you could do is, what if I choose not to take deductions? Then what do I do? Usually you're going to go back. You're going to go back and amend if you didn't take the deduction and you're just trying to jam up your your income or you're going to forego it because you're not required to deduct things. We usually will not prepare an amended return right. for a return that's gone to the bank. You're going to have something where the accountant that's involved, like us, we've dealt with this before. And you're like, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> like, you're going to play a little bit of a game here. You're going to say, oh, here's some expenses. And he called sandbagging. I'm not going to calculate them. I'm not going to check them. And then you're going to come at it a year later to your accountant and say, hey, I forgot to do these. And I need to amend. And your accountant's going to charge you and look at you grumpily and say, why didn't you tell me about this? And you're going to say, such is life. I forgot. Yep. The fact that you were told not to take the deductions because your process, it's not true that you, that you can't take them. What they're saying is they want to make sure that you qualify for your mortgage. And what I would be doing is not listening to somebody giving you crappy advice. I would talk to your mortgage broker and the mortgage company and the underwriter and say, what's the, what's the number you need to see so you don't go do things that hurt you because somebody's telling you, hey, here's what you do. Something right. else I've seen with this is people trying to up their income to get those mortgages when they're chasing really expensive properties, really yeah. overvalued properties. Don't do that either. You got to qualify for the stuff you're buying. So don't do a 2008 and overbuy your house. True. I'm going back to this one just for a second because somebody says, show me your calculation. So let's say that your basis of your house is 200000 and you sell, your sale price is $1 million. So you're looking at 800000 in theory of capital gain. You have an exclusion for 500000 I'm assuming this is married filing jointly. And you made this into an investment property. So you're going to 1031 the additional 300,000 and you're going to 1031, which means your new basis is equal to 500,000 plus. So I'm just going to do this 200,000 is your basis plus the exclusion. So your new basis in the new property under 1031 exchange is 700,000 basis. Okay. I don't know why I keep doing that. Throwing an extra. I in there. So your basis would be uh, 700,000. Hey, we always like talking about books. We like talking about infinity investing. We like talking about money and making money. And so we've been really good at helping people make money for the last few years by uh, somebody said, can you rent the condo to yourself? No, you cannot rent it to yourself. <laughs> it would be neat, nor to a family member, nor to somebody who's under your control. All right. Infinity investing book we published in uh, April hit number one, has over 100 ratings now, a bunch of uh, certified ratings, still getting five stars. So we're really proud of it, but we're even more proud of some of the comments, some of the people that are truly changed their lives. And even more so, we're proud of the fact that we offer our Infinity Investing Workshop for free. And we're coming up on Saturday, we're doing another one. So if you want to register and you want to learn how to make long-term infinite cash flow machines. So we're trying to not do quick hits. We are long-term thinkers. That's why it's called infinity. We want things that pay revenue forever for an infinite period of time. So go to aba.link forward slash IIW. And especially if you know young people, especially college kids who are thinking about getting into debt or doing what Jeff just was talking about, really reaching for homes 
that's buying a liability with a liability and it's extremely dangerous. Uh, and so we do the calculations and we show them how to think properly about it. So we can, so sometimes they won't listen to parents or grandparents, but we will help you. Somebody says, I had the whole family join. Absolutely. And uh, don't listen to chefs. <laughs> Buy the most expensive out. Well, how much can you afford? How much uh, plasma do you have? Right. ABA.link forward slash IIW. So by all means, it's free. It's this Saturday. There's that. Uh, and it's always cool. I'm going to have Pia on. I'm going to have Nicole on. I'm going to have Aaron on. And uh, Jeff is not invited. You might like it. You should, I probably come would. On. You should come on sometime. Anyway, should I invest into LP multifamily syndications with the same LLC as I have active personal rentals? I'm going to give my short answer to this and see what you say. I don't see an issue with this. The LP is protecting you with the syndication. And I think throwing it in the same LLCs as other active rentals. So here's the LP and here's the, let's say there's a property in the LP. Your interest in the LP is held inside an LLC that also has properties in it. So if something happens inside the LP, it doesn't hurt you. You're out here. You're like, hey, look at me. I don't get hurt. It doesn't come get me. So that's called inside liability. The problem that I have is outside liability. If something happens in here, in this one, and it blows up, they take the LP. You're right. So I don't want them to take my LP. I don't want them to be able to do that. So I would not put it in the LLC with anything that, because that's like. Well, like, I mean, that's why we talk about ideally everything's in its own LLC. Yep. And how much are you willing to risk? Yep. And so let's say that now we just look at the LP and it's worth X number of dollars and somebody sues you. So angry person sues you and they want your LP. It's still a limited partnership interest and you're not in control of it. Depending on the state, they could potentially take it from you and then stand in your shoes. So it's like taking somebody's Microsoft stock or whatnot. So it really depends on what state that LP is in. If it's in Nevada or Wyoming or Delaware, chances are I'm not too worried about it. If it's someplace else, then I, I may have a place that I put all my securities and my cash, usually a Wyoming LLC that just holds the securities and the cash to protect the interest in the LP from you. You know, kid gets into a car accident and they sue you. Do you want them to take your business interests? I like to keep it outside of my state. So my state, some judge there can't give my stuff away or force it to be liquidated and sold to pay a creditor. I'd rather do it in a state where you can't do that. And there's a few. Like we, again, we like Wyoming because it's cheap and because the statute is explicit. They can get a lien against your entity. That's it. They can't sell the entity. They can't force you to distribute anything. It really locks it down. And if you want to learn more on that stuff, come to our tax and asset protection classes. We teach one a month at least. That's actually free as well. And that's a good point because we often talk about protecting yourself from your assets, investments, mm -hmm. but it sometimes it's about protecting your investments from you. Absolutely. I, I think it's almost more the protect the investment because do you want to be dealing with somebody's divorce, with their death, with... They got into a big old dispute with an ex-partner or their neighbor suing them because they painted their fence pink and they're fighting with each other. Do you want to be dealing with that nonsense? I don't. So uh, generally speaking, most, most syndicators don't. They're like, this is you. That's it. I don't want to deal with it. But 
here they come, you know, somebody comes along and tries to take that interest than they get to. So I'd much rather it be isolated to where we can cut that and nip it in the bud. Somebody says, what's the difference between Nevada and Wyoming? They have the exact same statute, except Wyoming does not list uh, the names. Nevada lists names, but it could be a nominee. And Nevada is about, uh, gosh, it's like 400 bucks a month now or 400 bucks a year. And, and Wyoming is a hundred. So it's cheap. I'm, and I may be off 50 bucks on those, but Nevada is, uh, has a business license. That's, I think it's 200 bucks a year. Plus their, their filing fees, at least a hundred, hundred and something. And then Nevada or uh, Wyoming is cheap. Wyoming is really cheap. So somebody says, is the workshop on Saturday in recordings? I would love to attend, but I'm a single mom at toddlers. I'm a complete REI newbie and don't know what I'm doing. I would love to learn as much as I can. Of course, register for it, Lizzie. And absolutely, we will make sure that we get to the recordings. And then if you if you go into the uh, the free area of Infinity Investing, just so you know, we have three trading rooms every week, absolutely free for the basic area where Pia and our team, Jason and, and, and everybody will teach you how to invest. Even if it's 10 bucks, we'll show you how to invest in the market for the long haul instead of doing this craziness that's going to give you ulcers. Yeah, they're, they're not going to get you in trouble. You'll have to do that on your own. Yeah. But Lizzie, if you do this with your kids, if you have toddlers, you'd be shocked at what the numbers look like if you get some money put aside for them where they're going to be in 30 years. Anybody can do it. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, we'd love to help you. All right. I have been told that as a land wholesaler, I would not be considered a dealer by the IRS like I would be if I wholesaled houses. I make no improvements. I do not subdivide. I do not move any dirt. I don't have utilities. I don't add roads, nothing. Will the IRS still consider me a dealer if I simply wholesale? I think the answer to this is it's going to depend on the quantity. And there's a statute on it. In the statute, the first thing it says, because this is where you can get, there's seven tests you have to pass to not be considered a dealer if you're subdividing land. Number one is it has to be less than five or they start taxing you on the sixth. But more importantly, you can't be in the business of buying property to sell it. You can't do any dealer properties whatsoever or you fail the test. Mm -hmm. You're buying this to sell it. You're a dealer. There is no exclusion. There is no safety. If you've held the property, let's say you're not a dealer, you're not doing anything else that would make you a dealer. So I'm not buying anything to sell it. I'm all about the long term. Then there's an exclusion if you've held it for, I want to say five years is the minimum. If you've held it for five years and it was a single parcel and you went below, it's five or below in any given year, or actually I think it's just the, it's just the tract. If you, do le- if you do five or more subdividing, you're going to be taxed no matter what, five or less. Then if you didn't add substantial improvements, which is what you're saying, then you could not be considered uh, ordinary income and you'll be taxed as long-term capital gains. But there's seven tests underneath this. So we have to apply the seven tests to see whether you're an exclusion. I can just tell you, based off of what you're saying, if I simply wholesale it, I'm buying it to sell it, you're a dealer. And it's not horrible. Just don't, like if I'm a dealer, that means I have ordinary income that is subject to self-employment tax, which means I can fund retirement plans. I could defer the entire amount potentially. I could stick it all on a retirement plan. I can't do that with rental income Mm -hmm. or capital gains. So this isn't necessarily a bad thing. A really good structure is to have an S-corp with a 401k. And if you're flipping a few properties here and there, this may be a really good thing. Some people are real, there are people in our clientele 
who are trying to take that type of income and turn it into ordinary income so they can contribute more to retirement plans because they know they pay no tax as opposed to capital gains or anything else. Like they don't want the tax. They want to they want to push the money into a vehicle that they can continue to invest in and not pay tax on and only have to pay tax when they take it out. And the only way you do that is with active income. So yeah, it could be great. Look at that. I'm trying to see if there's anything else. Nancy Reagan, just say no to being a dealer. That's about right. We, all, we, we love Nancy. All right. Any other things? Let's see. So your dealer, if you wholesale houses, it's ordinary income subject to self-employment tax. If you are a wholesaler, you are in business for your, it's no different than a real estate agent. If you're a construction person, developer, if it's Jeff preparing tax returns in his business, it's just sweat of your brow. You're wholesaling. You're doing all the work. The business or the property is not doing anything. So you got to make sure. And uh, there's lots of good things that go along with that type of income. We just want to minimize it. So when you look at the people making over a million bucks, the average is between four and I think it's 37% that's coming from active income sources. So the minority of their income is, is dealer wages, 1099 income from their services. The majority is rents, royalties, interest, dividend, and capital gains. That's so when I look at the wealthiest people, we do, you know, close to 10,000 tax returns a year now. Mm -hmm. When we look at the wealthiest clients, it's not all W-2. More likely than not, we're going to see a mix where they have multiple streams of income. So can I do wholesale inside of a self-directed IRA with lots? Potentially, the problem with it is whether or not you're going to do UBIT. Elliot's answering that right now. But uh, when you're wholesaling, there's no rule on it. So we always say it's, it's the number, right? Right. Where are you comfortable if they're going to wholesale lots inside of an IRA? What would you say? I, I kind of feel like even if they're doing five, they've, they've kind of established themselves as doing a trader business. You got to be careful. that IRA. You got to be careful. I would say yeah, five is about my number. And they're going to look at all the other activities you're doing. So you mm -hmm. better be doing something else. If you're, if you're wholesaling and that's all you're doing, please do it inside of a corp. Yeah, um, I, I think part of it's going to go back to what percentage of your revenue is coming from that activity. Yeah. Does the cost of the property matter? Not really. I don't think it matters. Mm -hmm. You think it matters? I don't think it matters. Yeah, they're looking at the nature of the income. If I make $10 or $100,000 from active activity, they're, they're just saying, hey, it's not qualified. They'll, they'll tax you. It's called unrelated business income tax. And so it's not like the IRA will implode. You'll just pay tax as you go along. Somebody says, so if I put improvements on the lot, would that make it active? Chances are it's going to be dealer activity. If you buy it to sell it, it's just inventory. But um, I would talk to somebody, have them take a look at your actual situation because it's not quite that easy. If you put in things like, uh, I think putting in roads, if you put in uh, sewer and electricity, I don't think those things automatically qualify as substantial improvement. So I think you could still do it. But if you go beyond that, I think that that's where you look at the issue. Do you remember off the top of your head? No, I don't. Uh, we usually look at it on a case by case and say, yeah, you didn't really do much here. This is great. You know, so we just want to do all the indicia to show that, you know, protect you. I am a co-founder of a startup. Congratulations. Can I establish a self-directed IRA and put my company shares into it? The easy answer is yes, you can. The more difficult answer is how you go about that. So I already founded a company. Yes. And can I put my shares of the company that I'm working with 
and I am a co-founder. And you think I can put that into a Roth IRA? I know of it allows in-kind transfers, but I don't know if it allows in-kind meaning something other than cash, in-kind contributions. You can do in-kind contributions for sure. But they'd have to you'd have to have an appraisal of the business to find you'd the have, value. But you're also working for the business, so you're a disqualified party. Mm. And we'd have to know are, are you putting it in and is it is it being covered by the contribution limits? Yeah, you're you're looking at six, seven thousand dollars max. Yeah. So I'm looking at this two different ways. Uh, how did Peter Thiel did it? Peter opened up a company, and the way that I'm going to explain this is called a rollover as a business startup. I was going to suggest that. And you do a, a Rob's. And the reason being is because here's the startup. The stuff prior is not disqualified. The stuff after, you are now a disqualified, which means you can no longer have transactions between the, the retirement plan and the business. So if we set up a business, the C-Corp's the proper route to do it. You can't do it as an S. And we use our money that's in our retirement plan, we can do that as a ROBS. But then that's the last year investing in it. You could work for the business. You could take a salary. You could do everything else, which is what they're talking about with PayPal. They made millions of dollars inside of his Roth IRA because he used the Roth IRA at the very beginning. Once you set up that business, your startup and you go forward, you're disqualified, which means you cannot contribute it to your Roth IRA or anything else. No transactions. Did Thiel do a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k? Can't remember. I think it was a Roth IRA. I'm trying to remember. I think he was. that was before they even had Roth 401k, but perhaps, who knows? But it's the you could do it with either. And it's a Rob's rollover a business startup, the IRS tells it, but I'll tell you that they're, they're highly scrutinized too, because somebody takes, usually it's a franchise. So you're setting up and pretend this is startup, but let's just say that you have a McDonald's franchise and you need half a million dollars or a million dollars or something. And you're sitting on a 401k with a couple million bucks and you say, I want to partner with it. You could have your IRA or 401k contribute money and you could contribute your I don't know if you have to put the same amount of money in. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you you could have, it could have its contribution and you have your ownership that's individual and you're okay. That's not a, that's not a disqualified transaction. He just purchased the stock on pennies on the dollar. So what does Rob stand for? Uh, rollover as a business startup. So rollover of the funds in a business startup. So it has to be a brand new business. All right. How do I handle a family rental for income and expense that was just inherited? The property name will be in the parents' family trust with part income distributed to the children as their share of the property. The parents will be claiming all expenses and sharing the income with the children. Do the parents deduct the income given to the children as part of their expenses? So we got inherited property that is in a, sounds like an irrevocable trust. Sounds like it's an irrevocable trust. Mm Mm-hmm. That means the beneficiaries of the trust are the people named by the trust, which mm-hmm. I'm assuming is the parents. Mm-hmm. So I don't really see a way of passing that income on to the children, actually passing the income on, not just mm-hmm. giving them money, other than to pull that property out of the trust and maybe form a partnership and make them partners in the partnership. Where yeah. do you go with us? I look at it and I think it's an irrevocable trust with beneficiaries, more than likely the parents. 
Yeah. And the parents want to share the income with the kids. They can gift it, but the income's all going on the parents' return. What you can do, like, I don't know a way around that unless the children are permissible beneficiaries, in which case the children would be taxed on their distributions and it makes it easy. So it always comes down to who's the beneficiary, uh, who gets that K-1 from the irrevocable trust, which is going to file its 1041 and it's going to give K-1s out to the beneficiaries. And usually it depends on the type of income. You could retain it inside the, technically inside the trust, depending on the type of income, it might be capital gains. I think you could elect to treat that as non-taxable if it stays inside there and added back into basis. Yeah. Any capital gains would be taxed to the trust instead of the beneficiaries. There's some ways to avoid that if they're reinvesting it. But if it's being given out, it's going to be taxable to the recipient 99% of the time. So I'm looking at it saying the parents will be claiming the expenses. It's not the parents. It's actually the trust. And the parents are just being forced to recognize the income. If the money was distributed to the parents and they're just not taking the distribution out, then it would still all be going to the parents. And the parents, if they give it to the kids, would just be giving gifts to the children. Uh, so again, there's there's another workaround where you have, if, if you have a business, have the business pay the kids yeah. and let the kids pay the taxes at their tax bracket and use the trust money as as the contribution. So let it generate income and then the income gets paid out to the kids. Have, them, have them do the maintenance and things like that around the property. Yeah. A lot of folks don't realize like if you have kids going to college or you're paying for school or whatnot, you don't have to deduct the school. You just have to make sure that the dollars being used to pay the school are tax-free. So sometimes it's as simple as paying your kids $10,000 a year to do things that they actually do and you know, have them mm-hmm. do the things that you know, whether it's be sweeping or working on tech or or doing research for your business, whatever it is, just make sure that they're doing something. And then if you pay them $10,000 <laughs> is below the standard deduction, they're going to pay zero tax on it. Somebody says, is trading non-fiat crypto taxable? I know we get taxed on capital gain when we convert crypto to fiat. So if you have crypto, it's considered capital assets. So if you spend it on anything or you convert it for more crypto, sorry, I'm, I'm just reading this off of the, the uh, chat. Uh, if you buy something with crypto or you tr- change crypto for crypto, it is taxable as capital gain when you do it. So it's kind of fun. Somebody said Roth IRA, it was a $2,000 contribution. And he probably bought the bought. He just bought it pennies on the dollar. I have to look and see. You can't do it as a, as a disqualified party, but I imagine he wasn't disqualified if he bought the, if he bought the PayPal interest. And it was public. He's, you know, he's going to be small enough to where it's not going to be disqualified. But if you have control of a business, it could be a problem. The IRS audited Peter on that, by the way, and lost. They didn't like it, but there was no rule against it. So he made all of his money. And then we all look at it and say, boy, I wish we could do that. Well, it's like lightning, lightning hitting. Right. I bought a property in Texas in my name, now putting it in an LLC. The LLC will be put inside of a Wyoming LLC. That's pretty smart. I still have mortgages on the above property and keep making my payments. Do banks still use my mortgage liability to calculate my debt to income ratio? I think the banks are going to ignore everything in the first two sentences. Hmm? They're going to look at what's actually going on. That you own this property and it's got a mortgage on it. and uh, That's going to be their debt, debt to income ratio. Yeah, they're going to still look at your schedule E and you and they're going to say, what, what debt are you on? Like if it was a Wyoming... 
LLC, owning an LLC, and it was non-recourse debt. In other words, you had property that was a portfolio loan and you're not on the hook for it, then they wouldn't. But if you're on the hook for it, if you're a personal guarantor, they're going to use it. But they're also going to use a calculation of this guy, which is why it's really important to remember, if you can, get it on page two, because that makes a big difference. And also, they're going to be adding back in the depreciation in most cases. Somebody says, thanks, been on Tax Tuesday for over a year and taking many of the free courses, and now I want to get started the right way. Yay! We always like to see that. We like it when people stick around. Give us a year. We'll, we'll put some money in your pocket. All right. When I file my personal taxes, can I still write off my taxes on my properties held under my Wyoming LLC? Yes. And the matter is going to be where you put them. Like we've had people who just own a plot of land they get property taxes on or a second home. You can own 10 properties that are all in your property owned by you personally as residences Mm -hmm. and they all go on schedule a Mm -hmm. Uh, the problem with that is schedule a taxes are limited to ten thousand dollars and that includes your state and local taxes income tax so forth if these are rental properties where you want to deduct that is against the rental income which is schedule e yep and so uh so this is where we get to make fun of people llcs are not a tax status right so when you see a Wyoming LLC, it doesn't mean anything for tax purposes. We, need, we really need to know how it's taxed. And I guess that goes for the previous question too. So I'm assuming that you own this LLC either outright or with a spouse, in which case it's flowing onto your 1040 and going on your Schedule E. And so when I file my personal taxes, can I still write off my taxes on my properties? Absolutely. You're going to get to write that off, whether it be individually on your Schedule E mm-hmm. or it's going to be or the business, if it's a separate right. business, like a corporation, which I would never own real estate inside of a corporation. But if, if you're crazy and you did, then they can use it. So uh, if it's, I'm assuming because it says personal taxes, can I write off the property taxes? Yeah. What if you create a loss with the property taxes? Then what do you do? On the Schedule E? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, hopefully you can deduct that uh, loss that you created with those taxes. Yeah, because you have a loss. Now we have to worry about passive loss rules. Right. So you can't use your passive losses against your ordinary income, except in two two cases. The two cases are active participation or or a real estate professional, mm-hmm. right? So um, that's what it comes down to. So we have to look and just you know, generally speaking, yes, you'll be able to write it off. And worst case scenario, you have losses, you carry them forward, and when you right. sell, you get to write it off. Yeah, you don't lose those. Uh, the only place you lose them is if you have to put them on Schedule A and you go over that $10,000 limit. A sucks. Sorry. Schedule A for your personal, man, they beat us up on it. If you live in California or New York, I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. Follow us on social media, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. YouTube's the best place. Like You guys have some really good questions. Chances are we've done a video on it because I have Carl doing them, Michael doing them, Jeff does them, Elliot does them, I do them. You have Clint always on there. We're always, this uh, <laughs> is Clint or Michael. Yes, they still do them, Sherry. They're good. We're going to make fun of them. We're constantly putting out content, guys. Like if you have a question, chances are we've answered it. Do you guys do tax tax returns for passive investors with bunches of K1? If you ask, give me some info. Yeah, absolutely. Those are actually fairly easy returns to prepare. Yeah, because it's pretty We just limited. take information from here, put it here. And- mm-hmm. All right. 
my husband and I divorced in t- uh, 2009 for asset protection reasons, but I've lived together the whole time in the same homes. Ouch. That just sucks. So, so somebody got sued or somebody had some issues and they said, there's a story there. There's a st- I'm curious. All right. But we won't ask that. I purchased a home in Florida in 2019 and they both live in it as your mm-hmm. primary residence. If we get remarried before we sell, can we use the joint exclusion 500,000? So section 121 has three rules that you have to meet. Mm-hmm. The first one is at least one of the spouses owned the property. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true here. Uh, whoever, one of you obviously owned the property. Mm-hmm. The second rule is, did both spouses use the property? And there is no time frame for that, other than that one of them has to meet the two out of five years, I believe. Now, they do both, both of them? Okay, yeah, you're right. They both have the to use test. Out of five. The, the ownership. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. Uh, the third test is, did anybody use it in the past two years? The Section 121 exclusion. Ownership and use. Ownership and use. And, 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 di- and didn't, didn't use it in the past two years. Okay, so in this didn't case, didn't use the uh, exclusion. The didn't use the exclusion. So you have a a role. Uh, what is it called? Like a washing statute that says, "Hey, you can only use this two of the last five years." Even if you weren't married, like don't feel like you have to get remarried to do this, but you have to have ownership and use. So if you own half the property, so I purchased a home in Florida and we moved into it. It sounds like it's in one person's name. That's what I thought. You both resided in it. So if if a married couple sells, as long as one person owned it, somebody says, I owned. All right. So it uh, sounds like we got you. I'm not going to ask you all the questions as to why you do that, <laughs> but you own it and you both use it. You qualify you two out of five to, years. You have to be married oh, one day. You have to be married the day you sell that property. From an ownership standpoint, but the use... Use, you have to have two years of use. And yep. They've been in there since January of 2019, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. There you go. So you're going to be good, Barbara. You're going to get the $500,000 exclusion. And uh, hopefully that takes care of all your capital gains. If you have any depreciation recapture, yes, two years. See, you guys are good. So hopefully Yahoo. There we go. We had two good bits of news. Like we've had two Yahoos today. It makes me feel good. All right. Regarding the Tax Reform Act of 1986, if I make under $100,000, I can write off up to $25,000 of real estate losses. Actually, it's rental losses, but real estate, because it could be capital, not to mince words, but technically it's passive losses, provided I have active participations. Yes, if I make over $150,000, I cannot write any losses off unless I'm a real estate professional with material participation for that year. Can I write off the real estate Against my other income, if I become a real estate professional, yes. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to throw on there? Yeah. The, the one exception to that is you could possibly write off losses if you have passive income from somewhere else. Yeah. So uh, that's a really good point. So the, the, the code provision is 469. So IRC 469. And so they're looking at passive income sources. So if you have passive losses, let's say that, let's say I invest in Jeff's pizza shop. But I don't do, I don't materially participate in it. I'm just a silent partner and it kicks me down 50K. But then I have real estate losses from my rental. Mm-hmm. Like it makes money, but I depreciate it and I accelerate some of that depreciation. So I make a paper loss of 50,000. Can I use the $50,000 of real estate loss from the rental, my passive activities? Can I use that rental loss against my pizza? 
property, my pizza business income? Yes, you can. Now, what if it was you and we were, again, we're, we're 50-50 in the pizza, but you materially participate. Could you use your half of the, let's say that it's 50,000 each. You make me sad, Toby. <laughs> can I do that? I can't use, I, I'm running the place. I can't use my $50,000 of income because it's not passive. It's so me. not fair. These people in 1986, we should go back and smack them. Yeah. So they were trying to stop people from writing everything off. But, you know, what did they do? They made some unequitable results because I'm not doing diddly squat and I can write off. So it's better for me not to do anything. Kind of weird. If I have passive income from any source, I can write it off against other pass or I can use any passive losses. Here's a fun one just to totally mess with your brains. Capital losses can only can be used against capital income. And then you could take $3,000 a year and use that against your ordinary income. But did you know that uh, you could sell your crypto when it goes down, harvest those capital losses, and then use it to offset any of your capital gains when the market's going up? Not in crypto, but like in S&P. So like, mm-hmm. I have all these people that are doing great in the market this year because the S&P has been going nuts and crypto lost half its value. Right. Sell the crypto, harvest that loss, buy it back. There's no wash sale rule for crypto. And uh, you have this big loss. And then at the end of the year, sell a bunch of your stock to use up that loss. You'll have zero tax on it and buy it right back and you adjust your basis up. If that doesn't make sense, what you're really doing is you're taking a loss that you didn't actually really have a loss because you'll still have your crypto against a, a gain. And all you're doing is you're setting your basis up higher. So if you sell that stock in the future, yeah, you probably won't have any tax. Anyway, that's lots of fun. I just like doing stuff like that. All right. I'm turning 70. Congratulations. And have a traditional IRA account, which lost money. At some point it was worth $90,000. Now it's worth 30. That really sucks. Mark has been doing great. So you're doing something, probably trading options, Ooh. day trading. Stop that, right? I'm giving it stink eye. Now I have to start withdrawing. Am I going to pay taxes given the fact I lost money? So traditional uh, IRA. Let me give you the good news first. You don't have to start withdrawing yet. Uh, they changed that a year ago, two years ago. No, no, 72, right? It's 72 now. You you yeah. don't have to start taking those. It was about a year and a half ago now. That's yeah. the Secure Act at the end of right. uh, 2019. It used to be when, the, when you turned 70 and a half, and that was the dumbest role in the world. It's still pretty stupid. They're talking about making it 74. So you have, so you don't have to take, you don't have to start taking it out, but you have to take it out because you wrote off whatever you put in there. And just because it lost money, they're going to say, Hey, doesn't matter because you didn't, you, you can't use it. You're just going to pay tax only on what you take out. So if I put in and I wrote off, let's say that I was making contributions every year and I contributed 200,000, but I only have to take out 50 because I managed to lose 150,000. Mm-hmm. I only pay tax on the 50. So you got the loss already. Because remember, you, you wrote off 200000 putting it in there. You don't have to worry about a loss because you already took the deduction. So assuming that you put in some contribution that was $90,000 or below, you wrote that off when you put it in the IRA. You got a deduction for it. Now it's worth 30. You're only going to pay tax on the 30. So no, you don't get to write off twice. You don't get to double dip. You get your deduction and then you don't have to pay tax. Somebody says, should my husband roll his 
401k IRA is $40,000 IRA into a Roth, even if he's in his late 60s. What do you say? I'm not a big fan of that. I, mean, I, 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 I'm in my 60s. You're in your I, 60s? I, I'm in my 60s. You look, uh, you look great. It's the beer. I kind of feel like the Roth is the younger person's uh, game. They're the ones that are going to benefit it. They're usually in lower tax brackets. It takes too long to make up the loss. Yeah. The rule is if you're in a higher tax bracket now than you will be when you retire, mm-hmm. use a traditional because you, the deduction's worth more. If you're going to be in a higher tax bracket when you retire than you are right now, do the Roth because you're paying less and you're going to, you're going to get all that taxable out. So you, so you don't want to pay tax in the future when that, when the higher tax bracket's there. So here's how I view it. If, if I do a big conversion, even say a hundred thousand dollars, that's got to be a lump sum of income that I got to pay taxes on. Unless you have a loss or unless you right. have some weird situation, and maybe that, I'm accelerating depreciation and I'm going to get a big fat loss this year. And I don't want to have a big fat loss this year because I don't want to have a loss. I could roll over whatever that is and say, hey, I can roll over up to a certain dollar amount at X percent that I might do that. But And, and then it makes really good sense if you can keep that low to start with. But you, you, you kind of have to work out the figures. Do I believe the market's going to increase enough to make up for what the taxes I paid early? It's really hard. If your taxes go down when you retire, use traditional. You always want to, you don't want to do the conversion. If your taxes are going to go up when you retire, do the conversion. There we go. I was asking based on Powell's response. All right. Hey, there you got YouTube sitting there staring you in the face. We always like to, to point out that, again, we record a lot of these things. Also, by all means, please join us at the Infinity Investing Workshop this weekend. It's myself, Nicole, and Pia. And we're going to have special guest Aaron Adams popping in in the afternoon. And it'll be fun. Uh, so he says, oh, you said you could take the crypto loss or real estate depreciation against the rollover to the Roth. That's smart. You could potentially. So the, the crypto loss is going to be capital. The real estate depreciation will be passive. So we have to look. We always have to make sure that if we can create a loss in your real estate professional or something like that, absolutely. Yeah, so we can use it. Anyway, come join us at the Infinity Investing Workshop. It's always fun. It's always relevant. It's always different. So I like to look at current data. Uh, we're going to go over a lot of real estate data because there's a lot of fear mongering out there. We don't, two biggest things that could hurt you in the market, fear and greed. And so when others, uh, Buffett that said this, so when others are fearful, be greedy. When others are greedy, be fearful. Uh, but it's, it's facts will set you free. So if you look at the data, you'll feel a lot better, take away some of the edge so you don't do anything crazy. Come in and listen to the Tax Tuesdays on the podcast, plus our other content. We have a lot of podcasts that we record. A lot of them are going to be the Tax Tuesdays that we break down. You can always listen to some of the old ones uh, where Jeff talks more than me. <laughs> I don't know if that's ever happened. Uh, you can look at the replays. Ever since we start videoing, you just... <laughs> <laughs> Jeff used to be the chatty Kathy, right? Anyway, so uh, replays in your platinum portal. If you're platinum, you're going to have all of them in there. Let's see. If your IRA grows two to three million over 30 years, isn't there a risk that your tax bracket will be higher when you take out that 4% required minimum distribution? Yeah, but you didn't pay any tax all during that time and you took a deduction in the very beginning. So in the same token, isn't there a risk that you're they're going to have no taxes or it's going to be really low when I retire? So I can look at statistically, Walter, uh, during your major earning years, 
your chances of reducing your tax bracket are close to like, it, it is really high. It's close to 100% when you retire because the average tax bracket when you retire is in the teens, where when you're making money, it's over 20, it's about 29%. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's higher. So statistically speaking, you should always do a traditional if you are in your your main earning years. But what you want to do is uh, for kids, especially get them into Roths early on when their taxes are close to zero, 10%, et cetera, because statistically speaking, their taxes will be higher than zero when they retire. And that's, and that's how you do it. If you have 30 years to invest too, I'm more apt to go the Roth route. If I have five years to invest, I'm going to save my money. I'm not going to pay the tax now. I'm not going to give the tax man money that I could be spreading off until I'm 100. I'm just not going to do it. And just think, if you're pulling 4% out of a $2 million IRA, that's what, 80000 Yeah, you could be, your capital gains is zero under 80 grand if you're married. So, so yeah, it, which means your dividends are tax-free, which... Yeah, we won't get into all of it, but when we actually do calculations, it's usually telling us a different story. If you win the lottery, you're going to pay a lot of taxes. Yeah, but, I can tell you. All right. Uh, if you have questions, by all means, email them in. If we didn't answer your question today, uh, you'll still have a, I think there's there's 148 questions that the that our team has answered thus far. That's amazing. Isn't that wild? Like, I always look at that and say, that's 148 hours of revenue that we just lost. So and then we cry, and that's why we drink a lot of whiskey after. No, I'm just kidding. But we we answer. But uh, uh, if if you have a question that didn't get answered, tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com, or just come on and visit us. Uh, by all means, what we try to do is make sure we're not playing hide the ball, and that we give you good good responses and give you something to think about. Because quite often there's calculations that are necessary. And uh, you don't realize that there's ways to avoid the tax bite now. Maybe it's a situation where you want to make sure that you're still qualifying for financing. We can show you the things that you can do that's not going to hurt that. Or you talk to, talk to your mortgage broker. It seems like the whiskey is tax deductible. If you go to a restaurant now, meals uh, meals are 100% deductible. So it's just now, now if you go there, you're going to have to wait. They don't have, you're safe as long as you're eating in a restaurant. Can't help it. Um, food seems so. Deactivate the COVID. The COVID does not respond well. If you have a pizza in front of you, it's like it's better than a mask. We make jazz, but if we we know it's serious. So <laughs> as soon as All you right, right. this kills it right here. Yeah. No, I'm just our, our leaders are they're doing what everybody else is doing. They're human. And sometimes we pretend that they're that there's something greater than human, but they're not. We're all just doing the best we can. So just try to be good to each other. Try old granddad 114. When you're crying. There we go. See, you guys are good. I actually have a, a, a Pappy Van Winkle sitting in my office that I bought for Clint and he has not gotten it yet. So I might just, uh, see the girlfriend asked what we're going to do when we go back to Kentucky. I said, we're going to do the bourbon trail. <laughs> That's right. You're a Kentucky boy. Jeff knows more about whiskey than, than most people. But uh, you like the good stuff. All right, guys. Until next time, we'll see you in about two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 